Will you, uh, will you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that we have the opportunity to worship freely and that we don't have to worry um, about anything other than just being here in your presence. So as we open up your word, as we see what's been true for thousands of years, may you help it to come alive in our minds now that we might be able to see more clearly than when we walked in. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we, uh, we're going to follow in the, in the footsteps of last Sabbath, and we didn't, I didn't put anything on the PowerPoint on purpose, so I'm going to invite those of you who have a red Bible in front of you to go ahead and reach in front of you, and there's a hard red Bible in front of you, and we're going to be reading from, from the Bible directly. So we're going to start with the book of Job. Job chapter 1. One of the things I'm going to do, I'm going to go against everything our homiletics and preaching teachers told us not to do before. They would always tell us, don't read too much out of the Bible because you're going to either get, lose people's attention or you're going to bore them. But we're in church, so we're going to, to read a little bit here. So we're going to start with Job chapter 1, verse 1. And this is what it says. In the land of Uz... There lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East." Some of the things that might be popping out here is that he was blameless, he was upright, he feared God, not necessarily that he was afraid of God, but rather that he, he held God in such awe and esteem that the center of Job's life was his faith in God. Now, a couple of the interesting things that you may not know about the book of Job, we, we hear about the book of Job, it's in popular culture, we hear about it in church. But one of the things you may not know, the book of Job was actually the first book that was written, that the earliest manuscripts we have of anything written in the Bible. So we tend to think, well, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. That must be the oldest book. But really, the book of Job, if I remember correctly, unless I didn't see something this week that shows the opposite, but Job was the first story that the Israelites in the Old Testament would have passed on to their children. So from the very early age they would have heard the story of a man who was upright, who was blameless, and who had his entire trust and faith in God. Verse 4. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. <laughs> That's funny. That's another sermon for another day. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So here's a little, you know, he continually did everything that he could for his family. He was always going on behalf of his own children and family so that they would also be upright before the Lord. So this is the preface of our sermon. This is the story of a man whose entire faith and trust was in God. And now verse 6, and this is where the story gets interesting. One day... The angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? 
And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth, going back and forth, back and forth. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my, my servant Job? So that's code word for the devil looking for whom he can devour. And so God says, in, in God's infinite wisdom, he says, well, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So already this conversation is taking a turn that we're not always very comfortable with. Right? Because we always think that God would never test us. And God isn't even testing us here. But the way it seems, it's almost like the story is being set up for us to kind of think that, well, God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? Do the best you can against Job, and you will see that his faith in me is so strong that even the strongest of Satan's arsenal will not be able to dissuade Job. Verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So we, he, we see Satan saying he only loves you because he has all these riches. The only reason that Job loves you, God, is because you've given him a tremendous amount of wealth. And so then God responds, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky, burned up the sheep and servants, and I am the only one who has escaped you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine, at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. The worst possible scenario, the very worst that the devil could throw at this man who the Bible describes as upright and blameless, as the model Christian citizen, as the model of someone who, sh who we should look to to emulate Everything was taken from him. Now, at this point, most of us would probably be extremely upset at God. Most of us would be asking, why God, why God, why are you doing this? And look at Job's response in verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robes, shaved his head, which was a symbol of, of, of sadness and, and fasting, and he fell to the ground in worship, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. When the very worst of life circumstances came upon Job, he didn't curse God, he didn't yell at God, not yet anyway. He does later get upset at God, just so you know, he wasn't perfect. <laughs> But his initial reaction was to acknowledge that he owed his entire existence to God. 
everything he had, everything he was, his faith, everything for Job, he attributed that to God and that God had given him everything. And he, instead of getting mad at God, at least in chapter 1, he just worships God. The story would continue to go on, and you can read it because it's about 30 or 40 verse, uh, chapters long. The story will go on that not only does the devil take everything from him, but then he comes and he, he has this painful sores all over his body. Job just wants to die, and he's like, God, why? And at the end of it, though, at the end of it, because Job remains faithful, God restores all that he had and gives him even more. One of the main things that we can take away from this Bible lesson, and by the way, we're just getting started, so... <laughs> We have potluck today. We're staying after 12, so there's lunch provided for you. But one of the things that we can take about this is God doesn't bring evil upon us. It's always the devil. God doesn't say, okay, go devil and, and go do whatever you want with Job. That's kind of how the story goes, but it's not what our ancient theologians and our rabbis would have said. Instead, they're saying, no, this is just kind of the way the story was told. It was Satan who was accusing God of showing favoritism to Job, and so God's like, fine, you'll see that his faith is unshakable. And so for those of us where things happen to us and we are attacked, we can know that instead of pointing fingers at God and getting mad at God and yelling at God, instead of just getting upset and asking, oh, why me, why me, or poor me, that when the worst of situations happen, instead of pointing the finger at God, what we must first do is worship God because we know that as long as we are alive, the God who is alive will continue to work on our behalf. We know that whenever God's church is on fire and passionate about things, the devil will strike. Our church has been on fire to serve all those who have been disenfranchised by society. We have reached out to the groups in our society that people have disenfranchised, have marginalized them, and our church has reached out in special ways to be able to help those people, and God is attacking our church. But just as Job just as Job remained faithful, it is my challenge and my charge and my calling and my conviction that as Orange Seventh-day Adventist Church, we must worship God instead of ask God, why, oh why, would you choose us? It's been a whirlwind of a year for us, beginning with myself. And yet God will continue to make us stronger than we were before. What we can learn from the story of Job is that no matter what happens, Nothing can get in the way of what God is doing in this world. So that's story number one. We, oh, we have so much time. Let's go to story number two. This is fun for me. Let's look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. Keeping with the same theme, by the way. We're not just jumping stories. Matthew 16, verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, for those of you who maybe aren't students of the Bible, and, and why would we know this? That's why we go to school to try to learn some of this and have all the commentaries. But that's a code, that's code word is Caesarea Philippi. For us, it's just a place. We've never been there. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know why Jesus, or rather Matthew, is telling us. But in the first century, for the believers, the area of Caesarea Philippi was known as the pagan city. 
the place where all evil was, the place where a good Christian, or I guess in the first century, a good Israelite Jew, would never go there because that's where all the evil things were. It's, it's our 2014 kind of equivalent of a good Seventh-day Adventist would never find himself where? I didn't hear what? Las Vegas, yeah. But, I mean, I was thinking more like a movie theater. <laughs> right, but it's, like, it's one of those, uh, yeah, Las Vegas is a good one. But it's one of those places where it's only attributed, <laughs> it's only attributed to evil, it's only attributed to you, you we don't go there because that's where the evil spirits are, right? So when Jesus is in the region of this place. Already Jesus shouldn't be there, right? So let's see where the story goes. Not only should he not be there, but then he asks this deeply theological question, who do people say I am? Verse 13, they replied, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, still others that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this truth, that I am the Christ, the Son of God, I'm putting that into the text, by the way, but that this truth about who I am, it was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and what does it say? and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So here's what's happening. The reason I told you about the Caesarea Philippi, this is already a place where maybe a good Christian or a good Jew at the time um, wouldn't really be found there. You know, you would ruin your reputation. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are Christ, the Son of the living God, to which Jesus responds, no human told you this, only God could have told you that. Now, for those of us who are reading this thousands of years after this story happened, we have the whole Bible. We have the prophecy of who Jesus was going to be. We have everything in this book, so it makes it easy for us to say, oh yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. But for Peter... Everybody was, had all these bad things to say about Jesus. Jesus, is, he is a fake, or he is a fraud, and he's not really the Son of God. And ultimately, Jesus would be crucified because he said that he is the Son of God, but we know it's because he was, it was the forgiveness of our sins. But for the first century, people didn't believe that Jesus was who he was. And so Jesus says, only God, Peter, could have revealed this to you. And he says, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, this has been a verse that has been misunderstood by many people. People will say that when it says that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, people will say, you see, Peter was the first, um, like the first head of the church. But that's not what this passage is saying. Jesus is referring to what Peter has said, that Jesus is the Son of, that, that Jesus is the Christ, and that the Son of the living God, that is the truth on which God would, would found his church. And with the truth that Jesus is God in the flesh, not even the worst of evil, not even the worst that the devil could throw at the church, would the church crumble. 
It is the truth that God is alive and well, and through the ministry of Jesus that he has forgiven our sins, and as a result of that, we have the power to be able to move and live and witness in this world in such a way that we can change this world for the better. Our job isn't to point at things and say, you see, that's why the world is so bad. That's, that's for God to judge. For us as witnesses and as members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church here in Orange, it is our job to be witnesses to the fact that God is alive and well and that the power of God was witnessed in the resurrection of Jesus. So this text is not saying that Peter was the first pope, but rather that on the truth of, G of Peter's proclamation that Christ is the Son of the living God and is God, it is on that truth that God would found his church forever. In 2014, we continue to make the same confession that it is on Christ that our foundation is set. It is the rock of our foundation, and we will proclaim it, and we will confess it, no matter what may befall us as a church or as individuals. Just as Job continued to proclaim and worship God, and just as Peter would make the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you too, in 2014, must continue to proclaim that. Now, some of you are saying, okay, Pastor, you tend to be practical in your teachings. How is this practical? It's practical because it is the, the center of your theological life. To confess that Christ is Lord, it is that you are claiming that the impossible can happen. The impossible happened in the fact that Jesus died and was resurrected. He was brought back to life, and God is now functioning in such a way that we can know that the impossible can happen. When even the worst of circumstances befall us, God is still at work and his mighty hand is moving us forward. 1 Peter chapter 5. That's near the back of the Bible. It's like three, three or four books before the end. 1 Peter chapter 5. Is it 1 Peter or 2 Peter? Yeah, 1 Peter chapter 5. <laughs> Verses 8 and 9. Nope. Yep, 8B, that's how we kind of decipher. So it's, it says, be self-controlled and alert, period. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you to make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. So whenever you suffer, whenever you go through a trial, whenever you are going through that crucible, that difficult time in your life, the Bible says, remember, the devil is just looking for someone who is going to let their guard down. And the devil attacks, you know, for those of you, I always say this, for those of you who are further along the journey of life, which is a nice way of saying those of you who are older, <laughs> you have the scars to prove that the devil is a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. I have the scars on myself because the moment we let our guard down, that is when we are exposed. That is why I always say we want you to fall more in love with God 
by coming to church and worshiping. We want you to fall more in love with others because the Ten Commandments are about loving God and loving others. And so as a church, we want you to fall in love with others like in a, in a good way, not in a bad way, right? But love others by joining a small group and then we want to be a blessing to the world. That is why we exist as a church. And that is how we keep our guards up by being faithfully working and doing the work of God. For we know that when we suffer... What does it say? For when you suffer, when you have suffered a little while, God will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. And I want to read one final verse as we kind of bring this to a close. And it's in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And this is Paul talking to us about a future. And he says, I consider that your present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons and daughters to be revealed. So even your suffering, as difficult as you may be experiencing suffering and as the church suffers as a whole, the Bible promises that even the worst suffering that this world can throw at us, it will not compare when God returns and reveals his glory, and he reveals his glory within us. So even the worst of your suffering and the worst of your situations, one day you will look back at it and say, that didn't even scratch the surface of who I was, because God has renewed me, has made you strong, and your foundation will be firm as long as you confess that Christ is Lord and that he has reunited you back with God. Amen. Thank you.